0: Disrupting Japan, episode 93. Disrupting Japan is sponsored by Justa. Now, I've known the team at Justa for years, and I've been recommending them long before they became a sponsor. Justa is really the only recruiting site that gets bilingual startups. Whether you're looking for American engineers or Japanese sales staff or the other way around, Justa can help you out. Unlike recruiting companies, they are priced to be very startup-friendly, and unlike job boards, they're an active part of the startup community here, and they're trusted by some of the best talent Japan has to offer. So drop by justa.io and see what they're about. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know... I get asked a lot about the difficulty of starting a company in Japan as a foreigner. I always have trouble answering that question because although I've started a number of companies in Japan as a foreigner, I have nothing to compare it to. I mean, I've never started a company in Japan as a Japanese person, so I only have my own experiences to base a judgment on. Well, I've got good news. All foreigners who are griping about how hard it is to start a company in Japan can now officially stop complaining. I've got a pretty amazing guest and a pretty amazing story to tell today. Waylon Jung started Mobingi only two months after arriving in Japan, and he's made a success of it. He attracted a co-founder, joined an accelerator, onboarded customers, and raised funds, all without speaking Japanese. Of course, it wasn't exactly easy. And as you'll see during the interview, it's not even fair to say that he made it look easy. It was hard. But Wayland explains how he managed to overcome the language barrier and, well, several other barriers as well. We'll also dive pretty deep into startup accelerators, how they differ between Japan and the U.S., and what founders should reasonably expect out of them. Because wayland has been to a few. And sometimes they did not work out as planned. But you know, Waylon tells that story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsor and get right to the interview. Some of Japan's largest companies are starting open innovation programs and actively reaching out to global startups. They're new at this, and that's where Crew, with two Ws, comes in. Crew runs corporate startup accelerators for companies like Toyota and Panasonic and dozens more. And these programs are one of the best ways to jumpstart your business in Japan. Many are open to global startups, and they're completely free. Now, I've known and worked with the Crew team, and they're probably doing more than anyone to bridge the gap between corporate Japan and global startups. So drop by Crew with two W's, dot M-E slash four hyphen startups and get started. I'm sitting here with Lin Zhang of Mobingi. And Mobingi is a platform as a service company, but I know it's so much more than that. So why don't you tell us a bit more about what Mobingi is?
1: Okay. Uh, first, thanks for visiting my company. Mobingi is uh, is a software as a service. It's a, it's a solution for helping uh, companies to manage their application on the cloud. So basically what it does is it helps engineers to automate their uh, cloud applications workflow when they're trying to deploy some applications to cloud servers like AWS, uh, uh, Azure, Microsoft Azure, or Google Cloud. Then instead of manually configure the resources, they can log into the console and just use their mouse and click and make the deployment automatically happens.
0: Okay.
1: Now, both
0: Amazon and Microsoft already have tools that they say manage like the application lifecycle and can help automate these processes. So what does Mobingi do that's different?
1: Yeah, a very good question. Um, They're trying to make the cloud computing more easier. Like even AWS provider console is very cool. Cloud computing itself is very complicated. We have to face what is uh, virtual machines, how to configure uh, storage, security groups. Those technologies requires deep knowledge to manage. Let's take an example of AWS. It has a lot of services, more than 30 services. Mm. If you really want to try to use Mo- uh, AWS dashboard to automate everything, it's almost nearly impossible. You have to configure a lot of uh, stuff by yourself, by your engineering team. Mobingi trying to pr- solve problem from a, we say a high level solution. It's more easier for uh, less experienced programmers.
0: So the users can use the Mobingi platform to do the basic lifecycle management, and then if they have to do something really complicated, yes. they can dive into AWS or Azure.
1: Right. For some customers, they want to use AWS, but they feel AWS still uh, has a learning curve. They can use Mobingi, They just provide their uh, like a WordPress blog or their website code and directly deploy their application on AWS. They don't even touch the AWS servers.
0: Okay. Before we started today, we were talking a bit about how you came up with the name for Mobingi. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, the name actually mean, has no meaning. It was made by my previous friend. He said Movi is for mobility. Oh. Ingi is some maybe Italian word or European word. So combined together is, you know, the agile development tool or something.
0: So you were just looking for a domain name that yeah, was just, available. Yeah, <laughs> sure,
1: yeah. And sounds like cool in Japanese, Mobingi. But we do have a meaning uh, after we made the name. So M-O-B-I-N-G-I, sort of for machine obsessed because infrastructure never gets intelligent. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Which means we want to try to make it intelligent. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks. Um,
0: tell me a bit about your customers. What's, what's the core selling point of Mobingi? Is it just that, that ease of use, the, how quickly customers can can use cloud services what is it
1: first of all our current target is in Japan only most of our customers they found by using Mobingi can help them to save the time and some human resource cost and also another advantage is uh, we help them to save cost uh, not human resource cost um, means server cost for example some of one of our customers they deploy uh, their applications to AWS they're spending more than uh, 100 million. Heckman is $10,000 per month, which is a lot for a startup. Uh, AWS, they have on-demand instance, means normal instance. They also have like reserve instance and spot instance. and Spot instance, usually 70 to 80% cheaper than on-demand instance. But these instances are um, like a a bid model, marketplace. If some other people bid this, AWS can shut down by any time. So not very popular.
0: So they, so, by using this platform it, it automatically bids and and can reduce the cost by about twenty percent
1: uh, by eighty percent seventy to eighty percent seventy to eighty percent yeah but uh, the system not only bidding for them, uh, we also help them to ship application to the instance. if the instance being shut down by AWS, we're able to redeploy this application to a new instance before it's shutting down.
0: okay, and
1: that that that
0: alone would. Probably more than pay for the cost of Mobingi, right? Yes,
1: exactly. We are charging 15%, 15% out of the, the savings.
0: Oh, that's a really interesting pricing model. So you, yeah, you're, you charge based on the, the savings, not
1: the installed base or. No, not node base, it's the savings. A little bit, you know, a hard point about this because we are shipping applications through Docker containers mm-hmm. at the moment. So that's why it's, it's super fast we can we can redeploy the, the application to a new instance before it's shutting down, probably within two minutes. but uh, since docker containers is not very popular in Japan yet, there's a, a huge selling hurdle to customers which we require them to use docker, so we have to provide them some uh, support, even consulting to help them to ship to container containerize their application
0: okay, so I mean it, it seems to me that that I mean, the core selling point, I mean, not to be too cynical about it, but it seems to me that the core selling point is not so much ease of use mm-hmm. or the transparency or the multi-cloud. It's simply that at the end of the day, Mobingi saves the clients a lot of money on their hosting.
1: Yeah, actually, it sounds like that. But we did a lot of work on uh, simplified cloud deployment. We, we do help uh, a lot on like easy deploy. This is one selling point. Uh, the other the huge benefit, probably, yeah, as you said, is cloud savings.
0: Well, do you have a lot of customers who are not using that particular feature?
1: Yeah, we do have because they cannot ship uh, their application to container
0: yet. Ah. <laughs> so, are most of your customers enterprise, small, medium businesses, startups? Who's your typical user?
1: We are, we're a pure B2B business. Uh, most users are like startups who raised money already and some medium-sized and, or enterprise. Uh, Fujitsu is one of our largest customers so far. And the majority of the customers are, like with a team, about 50 people uh, deploy application to the cloud, like spending more than uh, $10,000 per month.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. If you're just running two instances, you're not going right. to worry about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> saving not exactly. a few dollars a month. Right. Excellent. Well, let's talk a bit about the whole culture of DevOps and container technology in Japan. Yeah. So from four or five years ago, this has just really taken over the way software is deployed in the U.S. What's mm-hmm. the situation here in Japan?
1: Oh, I see still, let's take example of uh, GitHub. Mm-hmm. Probably every company, almost every company in the U.S. have some GitHub or a GitLab integrated into a workflow. Uh, in Japan, is I think, more than 50 already. But we still see a lot of customers require FTP access to servers. And in, instead of GitHub, um, there are local Git services uh, companies. So to do business in Japan, we really have to integrate those local vendors instead of GitHub.
0: But if it's, if it's Git, it should be pretty simple. To I, right, you're right, pretty simple. The problem is there's still so many companies here running uh, CVS.
1: Yeah, CVS or SVN. right. And uh, other than the Git part and the code part, um, the workflow is also uh, slower than than we see from uh, Silicon Valley or internationally. Companies in Japan cares most about security things. So Mm. even taking longer time to secure some potential risk. Actually, let
0: me me drill down on that, because um, what kind of security do you think that Japanese customers are concerned about? Because from my experience, There are a lot of companies who will leave unpatched servers running for for years, Uh, and it seems to me that Japanese companies are more interested in, shall we say, procedural security. Yes, in
1: compliance. You're right, exactly. In compliance. Like, take example of uh, public IP. After deployed, let's say even you know, AWS, there is a public IP uh, exposed anywhere in the world can access if you have the, uh, the security, secret key to access in machine, which if we have a well-designed architecture, the secret key would be very secure, but could be insecure if there's a human problem. In com- most company in Japan, they, they care about this potential security risk. So like you said, process, if there's anything we can do to protect this uh, security uh, issue to be happened, they can take longer time to try to prevent this to be happen.
0: Okay, but it would seem to me that technologies like Chef and Puppet right. and Docker containers or container architecture in general
1: mm-hmm.
0: would greatly improve security mm-hmm. and simplify compliance and procedures. Right. Yeah. But still not really seeing a big uptake in
1: Japan yet? Mm, I don't think so. Um, maybe people have the, the the concept in the mind, just not executing it in the production environment yet.
0: Because I know, I mean, there are people in Japan who are very very passionate about yes. DevOps and yes. about containers, but I think they're sort of a minority of the developers.
1: And that's what I'm implying. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it comes to the, the company as a whole, uh, decision makers, managers. I think they have their risk to, to the company. I see most are still following the, uh, the old way.
0: I mean, long term, it's so much better for the companies to be yeah. using these modern tools. Yeah. Do you think it's because senior management is hesitant to make really big decisions that maybe they don't completely understand?
1: I think so, at least in the large organizations. But in startups, they're yeah, very flexible right now. Right, yeah, right. In startups, yeah, they're very flexible.
0: What have been your main customer acquisition channels? Have you grown mainly through.
1: Yeah, currently we are. Now all the customers are inbound only through friends introduction or through some of the, the channels like uh, Facebook or uh, we hold offline seminars. Recently we hired one full time sales.
0: Well, that's great. You're growing strictly from inbound. Uh, the sales staff you're hiring is that to deal with additional capacity of inbound or are you going to start trying to sell to like outbound enterprise sales as well
1: our business requires a lot of meetings because we get their credentials like a credentials so we have to sit down face to face to meeting a couple of times sign a contract then we can have them to deploy yeah so, this is
0: something A lot of foreigners who come to Japan are really surprised about this aspect of business culture. It's Even though you're a web app, you're acquiring customers through inbound web marketing, you need to have that face-to-face.
1: Yes, exactly. At the beginning, uh, we are just going to make Mobingi a, a typical SaaS business which can sell automatically online. The first 100 customers registered. Only five of them actually entered their AWS credentials. That's 5%, very low conversion rate. And those five people, they actually tried, five companies, they tried, deployed. And uh, four of them, they they either deleted or probably they changed their their credentials. So security is really, really a big issue on our platform. You had an additional
0: fundraising round uh, earlier this year. Yes. I I read in an interview you gave that Mobingi is already profitable and growing. Mm -hmm. So what was the motivation of getting outside investment?
1: Oh, in order to grow more aggressively, before Series A, actually we are profitable if we only thinking about um, that stage. Uh, We only have uh, four employees, no advertising, no support engineer cost.
0: Oh, okay. So it was just really ramen level profitability.
1: Right. If we have one more, we're going to be not profitable. (laughs) (laughs) Then we, uh, we, we uh, raised the a and right now we have 12 people in in office.
0: Okay. So you founded Mobingi in 2015. Yep. Early on, you went to both uh, the Digital Garage, OnLab Accelerator, and also 500 Startups yep. Accelerator as well. Yeah. <laughs> What's the biggest difference in approach towards, say, accelerators in Japan and accelerators in the U.S.?
1: The reason I joined the uh, Digital Garage... Uh, accelerator in Japan is that was the second month I came to Japan and I have a friend working in uh, digital garage he introduced then they they accepted me oh really yeah that's that's the reason I want to build more connections I want to know the uh, how to do business in this market you know, i was truly new to the to this country at that time yeah good program good three months I met a lot of people and uh, but to the program itself um, because I don't speak Japanese it helps me building connections, building confidence, but not too much in doing business. Then I feel I need more uh, funding as well as need more mentorship from Accelerator. Then I applied 500 startups, and uh, just lucky, they accept me again. Then I went to Silicon Valley for another three months. Actually, I joined another Accelerator as well.
0: Really? Three yeah, of them?
1: Three of them. Uh, the last one is uh, Fujitsu Accelerator in Tokyo. That accelerator is a little bit different from them. It's more like a business collaboration. It's also three months, but um, they're not teaching us how to do business. They're connecting us with Fujitsu group companies.
0: Okay, so it was more of an open innovation program.
1: All right, yes, open innovation program.
0: So, wow, (laughs) so three accelerators in in two years. Yes, (laughs) very aggressive. Well, you must have gotten a lot out of them.
1: I think for international founders in Japan, Joining Accelerator is a good choice, you know, giving out a little bit ownership and uh, you get to know more about people's thinking, people's mind and connections uh, it helps a lot and also uh, business opportunities. 500 Startups, it is a very good program, but it doesn't help to do business in Japan. The fund is pretty higher than Japanese Accelerators. They invested in $100,000 dollars.
0: So the Japanese accelerators the biggest value is kind of the business networking and the connections you got from them. Correct. And in the U.S. it was more...
1: Money and uh, business model of SaaS.
0: Okay, so really understanding how to improve the operations of your startup.
1: Uh, Yes, exactly.
0: Let me ask you, so before coming to Japan, you'd started several companies in China. Yes. And you went to school in Canada. In Canada. So, why Japan?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, probably the same reason with everybody else. Like, Japan end up with a safest place to live with. And uh, the food is good, the environment is good. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I came here is because my, yeah, my previous life, and she is Japanese. Then we came back to Japan together. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then opening a company because I couldn't join any other companies. And my personality, myself, me, myself, is entrepreneur uh, from my heart. Right. It's really tough the first two years.
0: Well, I can imagine. So in coming to Japan, you mentioned you'd only come back to Japan two months before you joined the Digital Garage Accelerator. Yeah. So how did you find co-founders? How did you, oh. how did you go about starting a company when you were, were so new here?
1: Very lucky. Uh, my friend working at Digital Garage, he introduced a good co-founder to me, Horiuchi-san. He's quite well-known in a Japan IT industry. He used to be an AWS evangelist, and also he was the ex-CTO of Gumi, an mm-hmm. IPO company. So he's really added value to the team, builds trust to our customers as well.
0: So what attracted him to the, the company? Did he just really get excited about the idea? Right.
1: He was excited about the idea and the product. And uh, we are both engineers. He knows, oh, this has future, and uh, we need this kind of product in Japan. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Now, I read an article about Mobingi, and it was in Japanese,
0: so I might have misunderstood a bit, but did Mobingi change from being a Japanese KK to a US company and then back again?
1: In order to join the 500 startup program in the US, the fastest way is to create a US-based company entity. So we create a US subsidiary. Okay. (laughs) But since Series A, our investors are in Japan, so we do a mobilization, switch everything back to, to Japan. (laughs) <laughs> Very complicated process.
0: It, yeah, it is. What, what did your what did your shareholders think of that? Was
1: also we communicate with them as long as, as we are growing, they're okay with them. <laughs> <laughs> so five hundred startups uh, U.S. They are also the shareholder of our KK in Japan.
0: Now I've seen more and more Japanese startups are actually incorporating as like a Delaware C corp. Um... Because it makes it easier to raise money abroad. Uh, I mean, yeah. Japanese investors are happy to invest in a KK, but U.S. and European firms aren't going to do the due diligence on a Japanese company. It's hard, yeah. <laughs> Did you find your, your Series A investors would not invest in a U.S. company, and they, you had to pull it back into a KK?
1: Uh, my investors, Drupal Nexus and Architect, they can invest in both uh, U.S. and Japan. Um, but since our customer base is mostly in Japan, and my IPO plan is also in Japan, so I think better just switch everything back, because the team is in Japan as well.
0: Okay. Well, what are your plans for kind of global expansion? Because this type of a technology product seems like it will work everywhere.
1: Yeah, actually, the product can be used by any customer from any country, but just requires we have a local team to do support. Because of that, we have to set up office in different locations. But my plan is to focus in Japan first, and we may go to China market uh, next year. I think instead of going to the U.S., go to China is a lot easier. U.S. has big competition. We have a lot of direct competitors, but in, in Japan, we are the only one providing this service. In China, one of the few. Okay, Yeah. excellent.
0: Let's talk about the future of Pass platform as a service in general. Mm-hmm. So I always thought long term middleware is kind of a dangerous place to be business-wise. Mm-hmm. In almost any vertical, but this one particularly, Azure and Amazon keep offering, you know, better and better, easier-to-use solutions. And on the other side, there's user deployment tools that are getting simpler and simpler to use. Yes. So how do you avoid getting kind of
1: squeezed out of the market from both sides? Yeah, that's exactly the, the challenge to, to Mobingi. <laughs> Currently, there's some overlap both sides with AWS or with other top layer uh, tools. But I think the value and target customers, uh, we found an approach that we're trying to make a simple solution. Like think, think about it, how many DevOps in this market? who understands uh, cloud computing, server stuff, Linux, you know, not too many. How many developers, designers out there? There's a lot, more than 100, maybe 100 times more. And those people, they all want to be able to manage some sort of deployment by themselves. We are actually primarily targeting for these people group. Hmm. Um, So we're providing a service, seems simpler and easier to use. And to DevOps, not that customizable. To them, not that powerful which I believe our approach has a bright future, has a more wide audience.
0: Well, that would make sense, especially if you're focusing on kind of startups and mid-sized companies. Mid-sized companies. So in the enterprises, I imagine they'd be more likely to demand custom workflows, and they'd also be more likely to have staff that that can do the custom
1: DevOps. Yes. One of our enterprise customers, they use many paid open source software license, like, for example, GitHub Enterprise. Each service, they are solving a uh, solution for one vertical from infrastructure provisioning to software build, you know, configuration, and uh, ship uh, in continuous integration, and monitoring, uh, Datadog or New They are solving each vertical of the whole life cycle. Mobinki well, yeah, you can say we are trying to do everything. But we are not doing everything by ourselves. We are trying to provide a platform on top. We do some part by ourselves. We integrate uh, the part by those famous uh, vendors. So as a solution to our customers, Mobini seems powerful and straightforward. They don't want to spend much time for uh, each individual vertical. Oh, if Mobi is already integrated, let's just buy a bundle.
0: Do you think that In the same way that cloud computing kind of abstracted away the concept of hardware, so now nobody really cares or thinks about what hardware their apps are running on, do you think that platform as a service that something like Mobingi could abstract away the concept of the cloud? So for example, in the same way Mobingi now goes out and finds the cheapest spot instances Mm -hmm. to bid on, you could actually find the cheapest compute unit yeah. across
1: Google or Azure or AWS. Do you see that happening in the future? Yeah, you get the point. What we are building is targeting that way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, like we have a simple UI, right? Uh, customer can select which cloud vendors to deploy to. They can select AWS, Azure, or like in Tokyo, we have Fujitsu cloud and software cloud. They can also deploy one application to different clouds simultaneously. So if Azure is cheaper than AWS, we can ship the application more on Azure. Are customers actually doing that now? Customers, um, they have the demand. But it's so hard if they switch the workflow from one cloud to another cloud. So yeah, I, are... that's what I think. I mean, because I've worked a little
0: bit on, on, on all three of those platforms. Okay. And fundamentally, they, they seem the same, but they're quite different. Mm-hmm. Once you once you start using AWS or Azure or, you know, Google Cloud yeah, Compute. exactly. So is it practical to have one application running with different components on different
1: clouds? There are different kinds of applications. Let's say a simple website. There's no database. There's no need to store some local data on a virtual machine. It doesn't matter where this application actually sits. Another kind of application requires database connection. Better to be the same physical data center.
0: So... Applications that are looking for storage and compute yes, will we'll do well shipping all over. But if they're using database or some of the advanced services of any one cloud, they're going to be boxed into that cloud.
1: Right. We call it lock-in. Lock-in. lock yeah. yeah, exactly. Maybe in the future, there's more advanced technologies can ship every application, even database, across different clouds.
0: I think so. I, I think that there, there's like two competing technologies you have companies like Docker and, well, like Mobingi, that is trying to make it as easy as possible for people to move between clouds. And then you have Amazon and Microsoft who are trying to make sure it's not very easy to move between clouds. <laughs> yeah, I think. Right. Let's talk a bit about Japan in general. Yeah. So as a foreigner who's come to Japan to start a company, what was most surprising about it?
1: I think the most surprising thing to me is honesty of, of business partners. How uh, so? As employees. Well, it happens to me once in my previous startup. Uh, it's a bad story that the, the people left with the project, right? The, my investment goes, like one year investment goes back, nothing.
0: So your, your partners just took the technology and started oh. a new firm? Or what did they do?
1: The uh, code, the, the project itself, I'm not coding. So we have to spend another half a year. To record everything else well this is extreme case bad story but amazing thing here in japan is my co-founders and my early employees we work together like a family and they try to help everything like this is their own company i can trust basically everything on them and uh since i don't read japanese by the time i have to open bank account for the company i have to do a lot of legal paperwork my first employee and she helped me on everything i don't even have my bank account access <laughs> yeah <laughs> Right, so, I can trust everything on the on employees. From the customer side, once the contract is fixed, not easy for them to, to make a change. It goes very reliable for a long time. I
0: think that's true. Japanese business customers, it can take a very long time to get them to sign the contract. Yes. Mm-hmm. But once they do, it's very set. stable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like a lifetime contract. So, the turn rate in SaaS business, the percentage of companies who terminated the contract, uh, the trend is currently moving at zero, but so far, nobody leaving us. Okay,
0: <laughs> excellent.
1: <laughs> so the difference in,
0: in trust, do you think that was the specific people you were working with? Or do you think that's a real difference in startup culture between Beijing and, be- and Tokyo?
1: I think startup culture. In China market, is more competitive, uh, growing faster. People are more aggressive. Uh, but personality-wise, I am a soft person. I <laughs> I, I prefer reliable. <laughs> so I found... Um, I wouldn't I say start. soft. Maybe honest is a better yeah. way of... Yeah, exactly. Sorry for my English. Honest. <laughs> so I found starting a uh, startup in Japan first is good for me. Once we scale to a certain size, we go back to China.
0: Right. Then you'll have the resources to defend the market you'll have.
1: Yes. And also have can hire more aggressive person to compete with these other people. It won't be myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what advice do you have for other foreigners who are either in Japan now or who want to come to Japan to start a company here?
1: Yeah, Japan is a wonderful place to, to have a startup life. Compared to Silicon Valley, it's cheaper. For fundraising, don't expect too much for foreigners in Japan. Because every country is the same. I think even in China, Uh, If it's a foreign entrepreneur, relatively harder to to raise money than Chinese. In Japan, it's the same thing. But once you're dedicated, you prove your person, build your reputation, reputation, then it's a lot easier. People see trust. They take some time to build trust.
0: So you think that that investors demanded a little more proof and a little more traction from you than they might have from a a typical Japanese startup? I, I think so. But once you proved it, there was no problem with investment?
1: No. Cool.
0: Before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question.
1: Oh, magic wand question. Magic
0: wand. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, oh, anything at all, you could change the legal system, the educational system, the way people think about risk, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change?
1: Well, I wish I can change the business people to be more aggressive. Japanese businessmen, they are very, they care a lot, every perspective. Yeah, this is good, safe for company. But also from the other side, it's slowing down the opportunity.
0: What do you mean by aggressive? For example, before you were talking about uh, Chinese being too aggressive and taking source code and and
1: moving around. So you don't mean that. I don't mean that. I think that's not in general Chinese. This is what just happened to me. (laughs) And to mean aggressive, I mean, don't care too much about small things. Let's talk about contract. We are making one contract. It could be 10 pages. But that contract's execution time in Japan could be longest in the world. For example, it takes four weeks. In US, it could be two weeks. In China, it could be one week and a half. What
0: do you think slows that down? Why aren't Japanese businessmen aggressive that
1: way? My thinking would be probably the process. There are too many people in the process to review. Each step, people are worrying about making mistakes.
0: So they're worried they're, they're going to get blamed for something, so they're trying to build consensus and let everyone in on the decision.
1: Yeah, I think I read people from every country same, but probably here is a little bit more... This magic wand can accelerate Japan's innovation, taking back the past 20 or 30 years. Electronic industry in Japan, Japan has you know, what brand uh, Panasonic, you know, Sony. Daiwa, Sony, currently not too many brands. Where does the industry go? It goes to Chinese companies. I think many Japanese businesses are slowing down because of this process. That's really interesting because I think that that
0: same process that is slowing down the decision-making today is part of what made Japanese engineering and auto manufacturers such world-dominating players before. This attention to detail, this, this not letting any
1: mistake creep in. Yeah, that's a very good thing. You know, making the product to be perfect. Well, that's the spirit of the Japanese quality. I like it. In our company, our stuff's changed my mind a lot. I want to release a product. I think it's 99% perfect, but they want to make it 100% perfect. Well, I changed my mind. I respect that point. But we need to find a balance. You know, sometimes, it won't be 100% perfect.
0: Well, I think that's right. It's, it's a balance, and it's the right process for the right kind of decision. So if you're talking about a product, particularly uh, an important hardware product like a car, yeah, absolutely. You know, go for zero defects. That's fantastic. Yes. But when you're making a business decision, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: are we gonna use product A or product B? Are we gonna use GitHub or GitLab? Mm -hmm. Maybe once you get to like 80% sure, that's gonna go for it. Yes, Yes.
1: exactly, exactly, right?
0: (laughs) So the right process for the right job.
1: Yes. Oh, that's a very interesting topic to discuss. (laughs) Internally, Mobingi is
0: kind of doing that. The, the engineering team is, is trying to go with the zero defect, and maybe the business side is trying to be more flexible. Yeah. And...
1: So I'm, I'm being in the middle. Sometimes I push it, sometimes I have to pull it back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool. Well, maybe that's the right model for Japanese startups then, yes, finding that balance.
1: Finding balance and trying to push the limit. Then finally, we have to release. It's almost perfect 99.9%. <laughs>
0: right. Well, excellent. Well, listen, Wayland, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really no, no. appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for listening to my office. Thank you very much.
0: And we're back. You know, I think Wayland really buried the lead in explaining his business model. Platform as a service, or, or any middleware really, is a difficult place to build a business. Because if you're successful, are going to try to expand into the middle and squeeze you out. Mobingi's business model, however, is simpler. They offer a service that saves their customers a huge amount of money, and that's appealing to everyone. Of course, in the long run, even that business model will be threatened if Amazon introduces similar automated tools. You don't want to build your castle on someone else's land. No. For Mobingi to continue to thrive and grow, The world needs to embrace multi-cloud. This is Wayland's vision where compute jobs could be seamlessly moved from Google to AWS to Azure based on who's offering the best price at the moment. It's an environment that would be great for developers, but Amazon, Microsoft, and Google are all working hard to make sure that does not happen. They want as many people as possible building castles on their land. I also want to echo Wayland's experience with the general, trustworthy nature of both Japanese business and individuals. It's true not just in the personal relationships that we talked about, but in corporate behavior as well. For example, Japanese companies will rarely breach a contract. It's just not done. In fact, that's one of the reasons it can be so time-consuming and frustrating to get Japanese companies to sign contracts in the first place. The flip side of that, of course, is that Japanese customers are extremely loyal, as Mobingi's zero churn to date shows. American firms, on the other hand, will breach contracts as soon as it becomes economically advantageous for them to do so, and they expect their business partners to do the same. It's just part of the business culture, one that idealizes rule-breaking. It's interesting to look at how Silicon Valley has changed over the last 15 years, and many of my younger entrepreneurial friends insist that this rule-breaking, mercenary attitude is actually required for innovation to take place. I think there is some truth in that. In fact, I think that's why accelerators in repressive nations tend to produce an unending stream of copycat startups. It's very hard to foster questioning of economic and market norms while you prohibit the questioning of political and social norms. But the other extreme does not work well either. Startups stealing code from each other, startups rewriting employee stock options because, well, because they can. I mean, don't let anyone tell you it's not about the money. Of course it's about the money. But it has to be about more than just the money. A founder's vision of we're all going to be rich can result in a lot of innovative Wall Street style financial engineering, but that's a zero sum game. True innovation requires balance. The goal of the very best founders and the very best startups is not rewriting the rules so that they can benefit, it's rewriting the rules so that society benefits. If you've got a story about starting up in Japan as a foreigner, Wayland and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show093 and tell us about it. And when you come to the site, you'll see all the links and notes that Wayland and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.